welcome to Sustainability in the Air, the world's first podcast dedicated to sustainable aviation. I'm your host, Shashank Nigam, the CEO of Simply Flying. Every Thursday, I have important conversations with top aviation executives, technology entrepreneurs, and policymakers helping aviation take climate action. Conversations that help separate the signal from the noise. Whether you are a frequent flyer or an airline executive, if you care about sustainability or simply love traveling, welcome aboard. Welcome to the latest episode of Sustainability in the Air. Today, we are going to turn the tables on ourselves. While I'm usually the host of this show, today I turn guest. Uh, in fact, there are two guests today. It's uh, me, Shashank Nigam, uh, the CEO of Simplifying, and uh, Dirk Singer, uh, our head of sustainability. And the two of us are authors, co-authors of a new book on sustainable aviation. And we will be interviewed today by Ayushi Batola, who has been usually writing all the articles uh, and helping us with the podcast. But today she gets the hot seat and the great job of asking us the questions. So Ayushi, over to you. Thank you for the lovely introduction, Shashank. Uh, before we even get into the podcast and before I ask you questions, tell me how are you guys feeling? I mean, you've been working on this book for so long and it's finally out. How are you guys feeling about it? Well, um, this is obviously the first book that I've, uh, that I've ever done. I mean, Shashank is a veteran compared to myself. Um, and it was, uh, it's quite an amazing feeling to sort of to see in print uh, the efforts where, you know, when you've been spending 5 a.m. on a Saturday morning trying to sort of to, you know, sort of to churn out um, copy that is, uh, you know, that is that is both sensible and insightful and that draws the reader in to actually to see a finished product. So it's a pretty amazing feeling. Yeah. Now, second, uh, Dirk, I'm not a veteran by any order. I have, yes, previously published one book. This is the second book. And I decided to make this uh, a little easier for myself by having a co-author. And uh, trust me, the book is done because I worked with Dirk on it in record time. So it's a very exciting feeling. Uh, I think what we have in the book should change mindsets within the industry, outside the industry, on how we approach sustainability. Well, amazing to see you guys so pumped up about it. And uh, I would like to let the readers know that the book is now available on Amazon. And the link will be available in the show notes. So please do check it out. Now, Ashashank, I want to ask you, for 15 years, Simply Flying has been a premier uh, marketing consultancy for in aviation, and we've been making airlines better. And now we're looking to make a foray into sustainability. So how did that transition come about? Can you share that journey with us? Yeah, I think it's always important to understand the why. Uh, interestingly, the why for simplifying has never changed. 15 years ago, when I started simplifying, the goal was how can we help airlines build brand trust amongst travelers? And 15 years ago, in 2008, to build trust, airlines had to provide customer service over Twitter or sell tickets via Facebook or promote destinations on YouTube. At that time, by the way, it was Google Video, not even YouTube, uh, it was the precursor. And then when we asked the same question again, let's say during the pandemic, the answer was health safety. Airlines have to get health safety right to build trust. And we focused on COVID health safety ratings and we uh, COVID testing. We launched uh, an accelerator. Uh, most of the team uh, that we are working with today was there as well. And we helped airlines build trust. When we asked the same question once again at our 15th anniversary on how can we help airlines build trust in the next 15 years, the answer was starkly clear that airlines need to get sustainability right, both in terms of their efforts, as well as how they communicate these sustainability efforts to customers, investors, other stakeholders, for example. And not every airline was getting it right. So as we dug deeper with the launch of this podcast, uh, Earth Day in April 2022, uh, with the launch of our Green Hub a few months later, as we wrote more about airlines, more about startups, more about technologies, it became amply clear that there needs to be a clear direction and a way to highlight innovators, which was which were the seeds of this uh, the idea for this book. That's where the book originates from. But if you were to ask me, we have not really pivoted or changed uh, our core goal, which is to help 
airlines build trust among travelers. It's just that sustainability is how they will do that in the next uh, 15 years, according to us. Thank you so much. That was very well articulated. If I were to ask you about how you got into the book, why did you actually choose to write the book? And I mean, you mentioned earlier, it was much easier for you to have a co-author. But tell us how that journey was, writing it together. How was it for the two of you? I'm sure Dirk can add, let me start this off first. I, when I wrote Soar, my first book, it was by far the hardest thing I had done in my professional life. It was really hard. It took 18 months. Uh, I experienced and truly lived out the writer's block. Uh, there was one time I remember being behind 25,000 words. And that was such a depressing day when I realized, oh my God, I have 25,000 words that I was supposed to have written. Um, and it, it just was not an easy job. Yet, the end result was huge because the book a book reaches way more people than a podcast. A book reaches way more people than a, a, a blog article. A book reaches a lot of people and helps change mindsets where other mediums can't. And that's why we needed a book uh, for this. Dirk, what, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are so many great stories um, of innovators that are waiting to be told. And, you know, it was great to sort of to to take what they're doing and to bring it to life. Um, in the introduction of the book, we actually talk a little bit about how, you know, so the sustainable aviation industry, it has echoes to, you know, the start of Silicon Valley. When, you know, when you had innovators coming up with completely new technologies and, uh, you know, and computing, computing new ways of doing things that we take as second nature today. But that first started, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And I think that in the aviation space, we are at that point now. Um, you know, we've only highlighted a few, of the, you know, a few of the stories that we could have done, but there were literally hundreds that we could have um, picked up upon. And a book, as Shashank says, is a much more, you know, impactful way to sort of to, to bring this to life. And doubtless we'll be having, you know, future editions after this where, you know, where, where we'll be able to highlight other people's stories who didn't make it in this edition as well. So, Doc, you also mentioned earlier that this is your first book. And you have, of course, spent a lot of white papers. You've spent several reports. How was this experience different for you? Yeah, I mean, so for people who don't know too much about me, I mean, I, you know, sort of originally spent 20, 25 years in advertising and PR agencies in London and then, you know, moved into sustainability, sustainability flying in 2019 when flight chain was first becoming, you know, a thing. Um, and it was being seen, certainly we saw at the time as, a, you know, a near existential threat for the industry. But in any case, having um, had this background of, you know, having churned around thousands of pieces of copy, I sort of imagined that I could do this, you know, that I could just write full chapters. And you quickly realize that writing a 6,000 word chapter is very, very different to writing, you know, a 200 word press release or a 500 word article or even a 2,000 uh, word white paper. And I remember after finishing the first chapter, I sent it across to our editor, Ryan, for his comments. And it wasn't even a case that there were marked up changes. There were whole sections that were highlighted because the changes were so many that he had to just highlight complete sections. And my first reaction is like, uh, gosh, you know, I was just I was just crushed. You know, I, I was living under the impression that I could that I could do this, that I could uh, that I could write something like this. And you quickly realize that it's a completely different challenge. Um, and then, of course, you know, I thought to myself, well, you know, just get over yourself and treat this as a learning opportunity. And so I went back to you know, try and the editor and I said, OK. For next chapters, I'm going to write as many drafts until I get this right. So you just tell me what is what is what is wrong with this, and I will then redo it over and over. So the first time around, you know, I did uh, I did two or three redrafts of complete chapters, but by the time we submitted the last chapter, you know, there were only two uh, there were only two changes. So you know, so I guess that uh, it was it was it was hard. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done in my career, but uh, I definitely learned something from it um, at the same time. That sounds like an incredible experience and a pretty new one. Yeah, and exactly. While Dirk is at it, Ayushi, let me add uh, of how exactly we split the process and how we worked this. Because we knew the book was going to highlight innovators, we knew that this was a book that will be based on primary research rather than secondary research. Most of the material in the book has never been published, in print especially. So we conducted over 300 hours of interviews. 
with over 50 innovators from around the world. And Dirk and I conducted the interviews together. We worked on the questions. Dirk wrote the first drafts based on those interviews. And then we went through the entire, um, you know, editing, changing, moving uh, process. So it was a long process. But like Dirk said, as we did it again and again and again, we became better at it. Absolutely. It sounds like the process really finessed you guys. What I'd want to ask you next is, since you just mentioned that you interviewed so many people and sustainability in the air definitely features the stories of innovators, how did you select those stories? Because zeroing down these stories must have been hard for you because, you know, there are quite a few things happening in the industry. As you know yourself, because, you know, you feature a lot of them through your own writing, um, we've written about literally dozens of companies um, in the space. So it wasn't really a problem about finding the material. We actually had too much material. The issue was whittling them down into ones that we could choose. And I guess that the ones that we ended up selecting were companies that were, you know, relatively mature on the pathway to commercialization. Um, you know, so someone like Heart Aerospace, um, you know, they've been, they have significant investors and airline partners. Um, same with air company producing e-fuels. Um, Zero Avia, you know, hope to have their first engine certified in, you know, in a little over two years time. Um, and that was really what we wanted to do, to, sort of to show companies that had a certain amount of promise in terms of the um, in terms of the outsiders. And I let Shashank answer the point about the insiders, um, the airlines that we chose. Yeah, actually, to add to Dirk, let me zoom out a little. I think it's important for everyone to understand how we decided who should be featured. And that was a really... Like Dirk said, you know, there, there are lots of companies, lots of innovators out there. But initially, I started with the premise, hey, you know what? My first book had eight airlines in it. Maybe I'll just have eight airlines in this book. And Dirk and I shortlisted, I think, over 20 airlines, Dirk, when we started uh, to potentially be featured in the book. And we started, you know, digging deep into their sustainability plans, into what exactly are they doing today? What are their plans up till 2050? And we started ruling out airlines based on the integrity of their plans or just uh, whether it was solid yet or not. Is this third party verified or not? Very soon, we found ourselves struggling with less than five airlines that could potentially be featured. We reached out to all these airlines. And for some of these airlines, we actually wrote out full chapters uh, after conducting interviews and at the end decided, oh no, this chapter may not stand the test of time because it's just that the airline might be at very early stages around sustainability or that sustainability efforts are wrapped around ESG or CSR efforts. And this is a book which is called Sustainability in the Air, not ESG in the Air, not CSR in the Air. That's when Dirk and I, you know, drew a line in the sand and said, you know what, we don't have to try so hard to squeeze airlines in. What if we make this about aviation? And that's what led to two clear sections of the book, which is the insiders and the outsiders, which is what Dirk was alluding to earlier. The outsiders are people with no aviation background. We have Hart Aerospace building electric aircraft, air company um, it, that, that is making sustainable aviation fuel by sucking carbon out of thin air. Uh, we have uh, Archer, the EV tall company. And uh, we also have Zero Avia, which is uh, looking to build a hydrogen aircraft. Those are the outsiders. They have no aviation background. They're new to the industry. And the other half of the book is the insiders. These are airlines trans transforming from within. Um, or these are people within aviation who are veterans who are transforming from within, not from the outside as the outsiders were. And these include uh, Etihad Airways, JetBlue Airways and JetBlue Ventures on how they're reinventing their business model. We also have SkyTeam Alliance highlighting multilateral collaboration. And finally, we have Embraer, which is an OEM, an aircraft manufacturer that is reinventing itself under the Energia platform and the EVE, EVTOL to rethink what a future OEM can look like. So it was a very enriching process overall and a very dynamic one. We didn't just land here are the eight airlines or eight companies to be featured and then that was it. It was, you know, a constant movement throughout. Like I said, we wrote out entire chapters and then decided not to include them. Wow, that sounds like a very wide repertoire of companies that you possibly interviewed and have featured. 
And like you said, we can't just feature airlines. It has to be a broader approach. Otherwise, it becomes a little siloed. Next thing that I want to ask you, throughout this all, for you personally, what were some of the surprising stories or stories that you found inspiring? Maybe we can start with Dirk first. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of great stories in the book. And there's a lot of, you know, really inspiring stories about how, you know, innovators in the space that they... um that they decided not to go down the road of, you know, sort of embarking on a comfortable, well-paid career, um, you know, where they might have been working for, let's say, an engine manufacturer, um, you know, had a steady job and then working on incremental improvements of maybe one or two percent, you know, annually, but decided to do something, you know, radically different. Um, I mean, um, Shashank's mentioned Anders Forslund of hard aerospace, but I guess one of the ones that sort of that, you know, really is, 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 is quite unusual is the story about air company. An air company, of course, are making um, e-fuels, also known as power-to-liquid fuels, you know, type of sustainable aviation fuel. Um, but that's not how they started. They actually started by making um, vodka and perfume out of thin air. Because obviously, if you take something like vodka, you know, it's basically made out of ethyl alcohol and, you know, water. And then for the, and for the alcohol, you need, a, you need a feedstock, which, you know, which most people think is potatoes or grain or, you know, like fruit in some cases. Um, but that can actually be CO2. You can actually make, you know, make it out of CO2. And that's what they did. And um, and they used this to sort of, to really as a proof of concept. So rather than, it was, you know, their, their aim was never to become a, a luxury consumer goods company. But, you know, but by making something like vodka, they had a product that they had that they could sell, sell at a premium, you know, the world's first air-made air vodka. They could sell it to New York restaurants. They then had something they could show. This is our technology, and we can we can apply this technology to other similar based process. One of which is is making fuel. Um, and the story behind the two people who created the company is quite unusual as as, as well. I mean, in you know at Simplifying, as you know, we come across um, startup founders all the time who have great ideas, but they have no concept of how to market themselves or how to position that idea or that product in a way that is compelling to external audiences. Now, Air Company kind of got around that because the two individuals who set it up, on one hand, you've got Dr. Stafford or Staff Sheehan, who is a Yale graduate, you know, an incredibly brainy guy with, you know, various patents to his name. Um, and he is, you know, he's obviously, he's a scientist. But he recognizes that very often in these companies, the scientists and technologists are not the best people to run the company. So at a Forbes under 30 um, marketing event you know, a few years back, he met his now business partner, who's Gregory Constantine, who came from Australia, um, who worked for um, Diageo uh, in New York, which is obviously the world's largest drinks brand. So he has experience as a drinks marketer. And he is now very much the sort of the face of the company. And the way that they divide it is, you know, his staff in the background, he works in the technology, and Greg is the public face who can, you know, who can position it, who can brand it, who can explain it in a compelling way, and really kind of create a bit of you know, a bit of pizzazz and a bit of um, charisma um, around it. And based on the back of that mad combination, you know, they've been very successful. I mean, they've, uh, you know, they've raised money from JetBlue Ventures, we feature in the book. Um, they've got airline partners on board that include, you know, Air Canada and Virgin Atlantic um, and also JetBlue. Um, and what they're doing is, is really revolutionary. But had they not had those key ingredients within their story, I'm not sure they would have been as successful as they are today. One of my favorites uh, is not just what Dirk shared about their company. It's truly inspiring. I recently did a private launch for the book at the Sky Team Sustainable Flight Challenge uh, ceremony, uh, which was held at the Delta Hangar in Atlanta. And what I found inspiring was how the Sky Team Alliance, which is a multilateral alliance, they don't control what airlines do. They only help instigate airlines or push airlines forward in their sustainability journeys. They've been running this Sky Team Sustainable Flight Challenge for a couple of years. A uh, large majority of the Sky Team member airlines participate in this challenge in which they take a multitude of sustainability initiatives in flight, uh, on the ground, as well as you know things like carrying staff. And then they have some sort of friendly competition on who was the who was the boldest or who uh, won in customer collaboration or who uh, you know reduced the waste uh, the most in flight and what i found inspiring was not just the measures that were being taken but also how culture within some of these smaller airlines was changing to support 
sustainability initiatives. You might think, oh, large sky team airlines like Delta, Air France, and KLM would definitely be up there when it comes to sustainability initiatives. But some of the surprising ones were the likes of China Airlines or Saudia, which won a number of awards for engaging customers, for taking a lot of measures in flight. Kenya Airways, which had uh, organic farm-to-table food, uh, food, uh, which was served in flight, reducing end-to-end carbon footprint of the food itself being served. It was very inspiring to see small airlines from different corners of the world doing their own bit. And all of this is leading to cultural change where many people who traditionally would not have thought about sustainability are thinking about it actively on a day-to-day basis. We need this cultural and mindset shift. And I felt Sky Team is doing a good job um, and a very underappreciated job right now at it because not many people know about it. So I'm quite excited about some of these stories that we will be sharing uh, through this book. Thank you for the detailed answer. That just those are like two very different things that you touched upon, and I think that's the thing about sustainability. We need a diverse set of initiatives to finally get to net zero. Now that we know that there are a diverse set of initiatives that we actually need, personally, which technology do you, are you really rooting for? In say electric, SAF, hydrogen, which one do you think is most promising at the moment? I think it has to be all of the above. And that's a point that we made in the recent hydrogen report that we published. I mean, if you take something like hydrogen, you know, actually any technology, you have an enormous amount of, you know, um, opponents and fans. Um, and the opponents can sometimes be incredibly noisy. Like with hydrogen, you have a full body which exists, you know, sort of, of academics to sort of who try to prove why hydrogen aviation um, isn't all that it's, that, it's, that, it's, that it's cut out to be. Um, but it really has to be all of the above. I mean, we're in a, you know, we have less than 30 years to reach net zero um, and we need every single tool in the toolbox. And obviously they're all going to have different, um, you know, diff- different functions. So, you know, when it comes to the thousands of aircraft, you know, to the 23,000 aircraft that are still flying today, um, we're going to need sustainable aviation fuel because, you know, those aircraft are going to be in the sky for the next 20, 30 years and we need a drop in fuel. So that's why SAF is important. Um, electric does have considerable potential to you know sort of to disrupt commuter routes and short regional aviation in, in particular and could even extend you know air travel to a lot of communities that have been cut off um, you know from air travel over the past 20 or 30 years I mean, one of the things that Anders Forstland the CEO of Hot Aerospace um, the point that he makes is he very often shows a map of the number of small towns and communities in the USA which had um, regional air services, you know, in the 1990s. And they were all cut because, you know, because regional aviation is very often it's expensive. You don't have a lot of passengers um, to, sort of, to fill the route. And the planes are, you know, uh, expensive to operate. So there's a potential for sort of electric aviation to really rejuvenate um, a lot of shorter haul, um, shorter haul routes. And then hydrogen, well, you know, hydrogen can sort of fit somewhere in between. I mean, obviously we have, um, you know, sort of engine makers like Zero Avia, um, who are producing hydrogen electric powertrains. Um, they will initially work on you know, small regional aircraft. The idea is that to move that to sort of to 80 to 100 seater aircraft, and I believe that they have bigger ambitions beyond that as well. And then, of course, you have the likes of Airbus who are working on you know, sort of hydrogen combustion directly into their aircraft and hope to have a narrow body um, you know, plane the size of maybe an A319 or A320 um, in the skies by the middle of the next decade. So in short, you know, they all fill different roles. But we need all of them. We need absolutely everything, bearing in mind the you know the relatively short amount of time, which is less than a single generation lifespan of an aircraft uh, between now and 2050. We've talked about the innovations quite a bit now, so maybe let's try to mix it up. While we have these innovations, there are also roadblocks to actually achieving them. Say there are cultural differences, there are uh, hindrances towards investment, regulation. Of these, which do you think are being the major hurdles to realizing a net zero 2050. Let me go back to 15 years ago when I came into the industry as an outsider saying, oh, you know what, guys, social media is not a fad. You have to take digital seriously. You have to look at the mobile customer journey, look at the silent traveler as a persona. It was very hard to change mindsets. I think mindset 
is what needs changing first for any actions and steps to be taken. The investment, the technologies, the funding can follow. But the airline executives have to first decide. They don't have to dig trenches. You have to build bridges when it comes to trying something new. And they have to take a decision internally that they, the only way of doing things was not the way that they did it in the past. There are new ways of doing things. The industry is changing. Let us recognize that and then embrace it. I'm not saying we go for degrowth tomorrow, but let us have very clear steps towards decarbonization, not in 2050 only, not when your government mandates it, but because we want to make sure that travel remains a force for good in the future. And that's very important. Mindset, I think, is where it begins. Dirk, what do you think? Money. It all comes down to money. You know, we can see, you know, we personally each know dozens of innovators who've been, you know, who have great ideas that are still on the drawing board that have got nowhere because of investment. In fact, in one of the chapters, you know, we talk about Adam Goldstein, the CEO of Archer, and he says that one of the reasons why, you know, the number of e-retail companies that will probably make it in the end will be in single figures, you know, as opposed to the hundreds that are in development. And he says the key barrier is cash, as simple as that, um, because it takes, you know, it can take a billion dollars to bring a clean sheet aircraft to market from start to finish. Because, you know, it can take five years or more throughout the whole process through which you're not really earning anything. And throughout that process, you know, you have to obviously, you know, you have to do the, uh, you have to do the design, you have to do the business case, uh, you have to hire people. And those people, you know, I mean, they can't just be, uh, you know, sort of people out of, out, of, out, of, out of college. You know, these have to be experienced um, engineers and scientists and business people and practitioners, you know, who know about, uh, you know, everything from testing to regulation, to certification, to design, and that obviously counts for a premium. Then, of course, you have to you know, produce your aircraft, then you have to test it, then you have to go through the certification phase, then you have to market it. All that, as I said, takes years throughout which you're, which you're not earning anything. Um, and so the biggest hurdle to overcome that really is um, cash. And that's why so many haven't, you know, haven't made it, despite the fact that they have some, you know, some, some, some really great ideas, which could be revolutionary. Okay, so Dirk, let me ask you a follow-up on that one. If you, uh, since you say it's all about money, if you actually had a billion dollars, which, you know, you always talk to us about quite a bit, do you think that guarantees you success? What other factors do you think would be at play there? I mean, obviously, if you have a billion dollars to invest, it's like any in- in- investment. You're never going to have a guarantee of success. But the fact is, is that, um, you know, is a climate tech, so the wider climate tech market, not only looking at aviation, is talked about as, you know, as a trillion dollar opportunity. Um, you know, there a number of VCs have said that this sector will succeed because it has to. It just has to. You know, that there are there are industries like aviation which have to be decarbonized. Um, and that's why I think that, you know, that if you if you're someone, if you're listening to this, if you're an investor and if you do have a billion dollars to to invest, this would actually be a good place to put it. Now, leading on to that, the question I guess maybe follow up is, is if I had a billion dollars, where would I put it? I personally would invest in an electrolyzer company um, because electrolyzers are obviously the tools that help produce green, green, green hydrogen that split water into hydrogen and oxygen. Now, green hydrogen is incredibly important for two reasons. Number one, it is one of the, uh, you know, one of the base ingredients of so-called e-fuels um, that companies like Air Company or 12 um, or Circularity need to sort of to make their, make their e-fuel. And then, of course, um, a number of companies are using hydrogen as a fuel source in any case in their aircraft so if i personally had a billion dollars that is that is that is where i would put it because um cheaper and uh you know and more effective green hydrogen production i think could really unlock a lot not only in our own sector but in a lot of other sectors as well so well we know where dirk's billion dollars are going <laughs> my next question is for shashan we know and of course people say that aviation is hard to decarbonize there are no immediate solutions that we have. So why should someone invest $1 billion in aviation to decarbonize it? Well, I think that goes back to the fundamental of is air travel needed? Why is air travel important for humanity? I am a product of aviation. Dirk, too, I believe. Uh, We've both lived in multiple places around the world. Um, I now live in London as of this year. My family lives in Canada. My grandmother is in India. I grew up in Singapore. Uh, 
and it's not just about me personally how much of life would exist as we know it today had it not been for air travel uh what the large companies and tools that we use today like google and zoom and the mrna vaccine would they have existed had their founders not been able to move to countries where they are working and doing some of their best work uh what about just cultural exchanges i believe we are better as humanity because air travel exists why do i make this point that's because air travel in its current state and current state of growth cannot continue to exist as it has because the reality is and we mentioned this we actually start the book with a few charts which was a conscious decision we took uh we know that there are 29000 airplanes in the sky today and by 2050 there'll be 42000 that's almost double what this results in is currently aviation is over 2% of global co2 emissions this number is likely to rise to over 22% that's 10x growth by 2050 and that's not because of just growth but also because the other industries are decarbonizing faster if i want to book an uber green today a tesla rolls up fully electric and i can't fly on an electric plane tomorrow even if i wanted to the earliest you can do that is on sas scandinavian flying a hart aerospace aircraft in 2028 for which they have sold tickets by the way we mentioned that in the book so i think it is very important to decarbonize aviation even though it's hard and we have to go at it both from inside existing large organizations and we have to think about the outside as well we have to think about the outsiders so both the external transformation and the internal transformation need to happen at the same time absolutely it's about internal and external transition as you mentioned i think this would probably be a good time for us to segue into the very interesting manifesto that we have towards the end of the book so dirk why don't you tell me how you came up with the manifesto and what that actually means for the future of aviation and travel in general yeah so in the conclusion we you know we sort of we highlight you know some of the record temperatures and wildfires that have been seen from everywhere from you know from canada to greece um you know over the past year and you know the fact that climate change is becoming increasingly you know real for people around the world um and the focus is you know is more and more on you know on aviation aviation's growing share of emissions that 22% figure potentially by 2050 that Shashank has just mentioned um now one of the problems that the aviation industry has is you know is that there are a lot of people with you know who are very sincere and with very good intentions um you know a lot of them who have appeared on the on the podcast and who you yourself have written about um but the industry does have a credibility problem um you know i saw the other day that dan rutherford from the icct who is you know obviously featured in the book he shared a post that was written by an iata executive in 2009 which said that by 2017 we would be having 10 10% share of sustainable aviation fuel now obviously it's 2023 and we're, and we're nowhere, nowhere near that it's what it's 0.05% um you know and that's in europe uh, you know which is one of the more you know climate aware and uh, regions of the uh, you know of the of the world. So we put the manifesto together really to sort of to you know sort of to dare the industry to um uh, to commit to certain actions. Um you know to show that they are serious about you know about sort of decarbonizing into reaching net zero by 2050 you know sort of if not before. And really sort of the eight points we put forward were you know first of all we talk about the idea that growth has to be tied to sustainability. Um so you very often hear this phrase being used in the industry of decoupling decoupling emissions and you know and the increase in greenhouse gases to growth ashashank said we are not in favor of degrowth we believe that you know that aviation is a good thing that air travel is a good thing and we want to widen the benefits so that we ourselves have enjoyed out to more people around the world but really any growth has to be tied to a drop in the climate impact that the industry has um so you know so so the two need to work and work in tandem and what's very important there is we need to talk in absolute terms um as well so we need to talk in absolute emissions very often as you know in the sector you know you'll hear airlines come up and say well you know we've we've decreased our per seat co2 emissions by xx percent which is meaningless if your you know if your absolute share is still growing up the second point is to combine incentives and mandates we talked about money about the fact that you know that only 16% of climate tech needs are currently being being being, being met um and there needs to be more incentives such as the inflation reduction act in the us um you know which is already kickstarted the whole industry 
measures like that should be implemented and introduced world, worldwide. Then you need to have mandates as, as well, such as in the European Union, you know, with a refuel 2030 um, um, a mandates and the sort of new SAF initiatives they put in place. And the two really have to work together, you know, both the carrot and the stick. Um, the polluted pace principle um, and a clean skies fund. That third point that comes down to, you'll see a lot of talk in the industry about and from activists about a frequent fly tax. You know, this idea that those who fly more should pay more. And the principle of it is something that we agree with. So last year I took I took 12 flights and that very much makes me a frequent flyer. Um, and it is completely fair that I should pay more for that than someone who, you know, who in Europe is going, you know, on the annual holiday to, let's say, to Tenerife or to Gran Canaria, or someone in, in India who's, who, who's flying for the first time. Um, but rather than it being a frequent flyer tax, which has a very punitive feel about it, we prefer to set a position as a clean skies fund. So a little bit like the fuel surcharges you sometimes get, you know, when oil prices increase, that goes into a pooled fund to help decarbonize the industry. Um, other factors are obviously global equity, um, including the global south. Um, you know, one of the things is that almost every SAC producer right, right now is in, you know, is in North America or in Western Europe. You know, in the Far East, there is one SAF refinery, which is in Singapore. Um, that obviously has to be addressed because that is where the, where the growth market is. Um, ensuring that aviation doesn't take more than its, than its fair share, to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, that the resources that will be needed to decarbonize aviation, both in terms of, let's say, feedstocks for SAF or in renewable electricity, they are finite um, and they need to be shared equitably with other industries. Um, transparency, accountability and targets um, is our sixth point. So really to sort of this idea that we often talk about, you can't mark your own homework. You know, if you publish um, sustainability targets, they have to be audited and you have to have a credible independent third party coming on board to, you know, to say that what you're actually doing is, you know, is really happening and it's above board. Um, cooperation and knowledge sharing, you know, Shashank just talked about the SkyTeam Sustainable Flight Challenge. That is an excellent example of that, of airlines coming together to pool resources and knowledge. And then finally, to aim for what we call true zero and not net zero. So to sort of to foster, um, you know, so next generation propulsion systems such as hydrogen and electric, they might yet be a generation away, you know, and between that time, we'll need sustainable aviation fuel. But really, we should be aiming for a future where there are no, uh, where there is no climate impact and whatsoever and to, and to fast charge the technology that makes that possible. Absolutely. I think the manifesto serves as a guiding light for an industry that basically has no clear solutions at the moment. And I think it's important to bear all of these factors in mind while choosing not just a technology, but also going forth with, say, a said policy or a certain structure or framework. Now, those were the steps that Dirk mentioned that the industry requires. Now, Shashank, the book also touches upon uh, actions that individuals can take. Could you tell us more about that? Yes, I think individuals have a lot here that they can do. We as individual travelers, and not all individuals are made equal. We highlight this in the book as well. As a traveler, I'll start with the traveler because there are many. Let's have, let's have this conversation. The next time you're flying, let's... Have this conversation on the dinner table with your friends. Hey, do we need to fly this long only for this trip? Is there a train alternative? Can we combine trips, for example? Um, let's have these honest conversations because conversations spark ideas and ideas spark action. Uh, that's, what, that's what I truly believe. But also, if you do decide to fly, I have personally combined work trips with leisure trips over the last two years. I call these workations where I might have a two or three day work trip. I extend it to another week and just tag on and I bring my family along. We have our family holiday at the end of it and I've got some work done as well. Combines two trips into one with the family holiday taken care of as well. Uh, if you are flying uh, indeed, then see if, we, if there are some credible offset methods that you can take, which the airline might be offering. You can buy sustainable aviation fuel on certain flights uh, with certain airlines today, for example. There are some high-grade carbon offsets that are available as well. Can you do something to take care of your carbon footprint today? Uh, try to fly long. Uh, if you're flying uh, a flight, try to fly nonstop. That's something else I have really put into place in my own flying, uh, where the cheapest option sometimes is one stop or two stop. But the one with the least carbon footprint is usually one that's nonstop. So, 
use tools like Google Flights uh, or use an airline like United, which in its booking path shows you the carbon footprint of the aircraft that you're taking, a 767 versus a 777 versus a 787. And the 787 will burn less fuel per person uh, for the same flight, for the same route. And it shows you your carbon footprint will be lower. So do that intelligent research. And this is, these are simple things you can do as a traveler. We, of course, include a lot more tips in the book. But also, we know that a lot of the audience for this book will be airline executives or aviation executives or airline executives in the making. Because my current book is already taught at three different universities. I am already in talks with universities to potentially have the new book as a feature in places like Emory Riddle and Cranfield, which produce a lot of our aviation executives in the future. So if you're an aviation executive, I think it's important to ask, hey, where am I having the biggest impact in my career? If you are a C-level airline executive, for example, and instead of looking for your next C-level role in a larger airline, I would urge you to look at the outsiders who are featured in our book, as well as 20 other innovators to watch out for, because these guys, like I said earlier, do not have aviation background. But to scale from one test flight to 10 test flights to 100 aircraft on order, they need aviation expertise. And guess who has them? C-level executives at airlines today. So if you're a CMO, see how you can help Archer build a huge brand. If you are an airline CCO, see how you can help Hart Aerospace build a commercial model for regional flying. We've already seen certain airline executives move to these technology companies to share their expertise. And I think this is just one of the things existing airline executives can do because they have influence. You, you have in, influence uh, if you're listening. So think about where can you have the biggest impact in aviation in the next 10 years, and that will be in the sustainability realm. Absolutely. I think using influence in the best way possible is in the interest of the industry at large. Thank you for articulating that so beautifully. If we could now move on to what your takeaways from the book were. So Dirk, you have mentioned quite a few times earlier that you were hydrogen skeptic. And now, of course, you find it more of a hopeful solution. How has your perspective about sustainability changed after researching so much and writing about the industry's change makers? I think that the key takeaway for me is whatever the problem, there is a solution. Someone is inevitably working on a, working a solution for it. So, you know, so you take... Um, you know, so you take uh, the production of, let's say, um, sustainable aviation fuel. Um, now, SAFT is you, is generally made using a process called the Fischer-Tropsch method, which is which was you know invented by two German scientists, and I believe nineteen twenty five. Um, you know, so it's so, so it's a process for making synthetic fuels that's almost one hundred years old, and it is very, very, very energy efficient. And one of the main criticisms that you'll find about e fuel use is, uh, you know, as you'll hear, well, this takes up too much renewable energy. You know, you had Carsten Spohr, the CEO of Lufthansa the other week, saying that to use e-fuels on Lufthansa's fleet, you would be using, I think he said, half the total electricity consumption of, of Germany. But the thing is, there are people working on this. Um, you know, so in the book, again, we feature air company. And I said, you know, Stafford Sheehan, one of the founders of air company, he has, you know, found a new process to uh, to make e-fuels rather than Fischer-Tropsch, which he says has more than double the efficiency. Now we're only at the start of this process, so it stands to reason that as the years go by, you know, that will become even even more efficient. Um, I guess it's sort of that hydrogen, I mean, uh, once I looked into it a little bit more, then yes, I mean, I do see that there's a lot of potential. And that's why I said previously that if I had money to invest, I would put it into an electrolyzer company that helped produce green hydrogen, because hydrogen is very much as the, is the, is the Swiss army knife that unlocks so much of um of aviation de decarbonization but i felt you know feeling quite hopeful as i said that there that for every problem there is someone working on a solution be it as i said be it hydrogen be it you know staff resource use be it making more efficient batteries uh, you know someone someone somewhere is already working on this what we need is we need the investment and the help to help bring those products to market absolutely we need all the help yeah so shashank how is the book writing process for you since the two of you were writing the book together, did you have any difference of opinion? And if you did, what was your process of resolution? Yeah, initially, like I shared earlier, we, I think, started off on the note, 
hey, let's just have eight to 10 airlines. And we realized we were hitting dead ends. We had to change our entire approach. Then we said, oh, you know, uh, let's have these shortlisted airlines and these shortlisted non-airlines. We, like I said, wrote entire chapters after doing interviews, realizing only that this might not last for 25 years. This, I mean, a, the book will be found 25 years from now in a library somewhere. And these stories need to be timeless. So that's when we realized we need to focus on innovators. We need to focus on the stories and the struggles and the triumphs of innovators. And that's what we decided to focus on. And like I shared earlier, we did the interviews together. Um, Dirk wrote the first draft. Then we worked with the editor to get the book, each chapter to its uh, final destination. And, you know, it's, it's been a long process of almost a year now. Uh, to try to get this book to fruition. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, we at Simplifying definitely know how much you guys have been working at this. But even when you were working on the process, sustainable aviation is a very fast-moving field. How did you manage to keep up and how did you ensure that the stories that you were putting in the book were going to be relevant for, say, decades to come? I'm, I'm sure Dirk can highlight a bit more, but like I said, our focus was on timeless stories. So the journey of an individual or the journey of an innovator is timeless. It doesn't matter whether uh, the technology currently is current or not. You're absolutely right. Technologies are changing all the time, especially in this fast evolving sustainable aviation field. Uh, but you know what? If, if you read about the struggles of Steve Jobs today about starting Apple in the beginning, it in inspires you today. If you read about the struggles of Elon Musk uh, when he f almost did not meet the payroll uh, one Christmas Eve at Tesla in the early days, you relate to it. If you read the story today of, uh, if you read Shoe Dog, uh, the story of Nike and its founding, you relate to them. That was how we approached writing this book. These are stories of innovators that are timeless. Uh, we know and we acknowledge the fact that technologies will change. We just felt that this is an urgent and important situation that needs to be dealt with. Airlines need to decarbonize. And here are the innovators showing you how. Laying the right foundation matters. And I guess that's what you're doing with the book. I think my next question would be, now that you guys are like freshly out of finishing the book, what's your next project? What are you, what are you planning on writing next? I think, uh, let's start with Dirk first this time. So, I mean, I think that we could produce many more editions of this book because there are so many great stories that didn't make it in. In fact, at the end, we have, you know, 10 more companies to watch, um, you know, that are kind of innovators bubbling up under the surface that we believe that people should, should keep an eye on. But there are literally dozens that we could take that could make for, you know, really interesting book chapters. And obviously, you know, you yourself and the work that you do at Simplifying, you sort of, you see and come into contact with a lot of them. The other interesting industry, I think, where there's a lot of um, parallels to aviation is actually is the maritime industry, because it faces many of the same challenges and many of the same technologies, um, you know, from um, uh, from battery electric power to hydrogen, you see being used in maritime shipping. Um, and there's a certain amount of you know, synergy between between those two. Um, so I personally think that would be a very interesting um, next area to, 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 to look at as well. Well, Dirk is already thinking big here. Um, I just want to make sure that this book is a success. It reaches the right people. It impacts the right minds. I want to make sure that this book spreads far and wide before I think about the next. Before I start thinking about the next thing, my first book came out seven years ago. Since then, the first book has had four new editions, and I potentially think that this book can, like Dirk said, have more editions. Uh, in the coming upcoming years, featuring more innovators, more technologies that are truly transforming aviation. Okay, so that brings us to one of our final questions. It is the final question, actually. Not the, what tips do you have for people who are aspiring to write a book? How would you approach it? How should they go about it? Any tips you guys might want to share? Having done this twice, I would say it's much easier if you do it with someone you trust and someone you respect. I did it once the first time alone was very hard. I had an entire team, not just simplifying team, but the publisher working with me. It took me 18 months. Right now, we managed to do this in just under, under a year. And that's thanks to uh, all the heavy lifting that Dirk did uh, and all the heavy lifting that the publisher did. I would not have been able to do this myself alone. So my big lesson is work with someone you respect and someone you trust. And in this case, that's been Dirk for me. I think I would just say, um, you know, persevere. 
um, you know, that this is, you know, you've got to recognize this is going to be much harder than you thought that it was going to be. Um, but you have to stick with it. You have to, um, you know, you have to accept that it's not going to be right the first time that you if you try it. Um, and you've just got to, you know, have the willpower, the stamina, if you like, to sort of to see it through in the end. And as Shashang says, as a result, you know, we started this project in, you know, in January. Um, you know, the last bit of writing was actually done in, uh, was done in, in August. So, you know, so, so the material that you see is actually is relatively recent. Um, and that is, uh, that, is, that is really what I would say now. That was my, my takeaway from it. Finally, uh, to all those who are listening to this episode, we will be launching the book in person at multiple events this year. So if you're at the Skift Forum in Dallas, uh, join me there. Uh, happy to sign copies for you uh, if you're attending. If you are in London for Aviation Carbon in November or for World Travel Market, Dirk and I will both be there in London uh, signing books. And if you're at the Dubai Air Show, uh, in late November, mid-November, uh, please let us know. Happy to sign copies if you get it from Amazon, from a local bookstore, or uh, hit us up. We might even send you an exclusive invite to the book launch, which we're doing for the industry there. So just just um, you know, shout out there for anyone who is a fan and would love to meet us. Thank you so much for your time, gentlemen, and for the lovely insights about the book. Sustainable uh-huh. Aviation is truly a very exciting sphere and the pathways to net zero are of course really something that we all look forward to that said the medium term matters as well and you've captured that really well in the book as a reminder for the listeners the book is now available on amazon the link can be found in the show notes thank you so much for listening to sustainability in the air until our next episode this is ayushi signing off with Shashank and Duck. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ayushi. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sustainability in the Air. Aviation is one of the hardest to decarbonize industries, yet there are multiple paths to get to net zero. Awareness is key to a green future. So please give us your support to help our sustainable aviation insights reach a wider audience. You can do this by sharing this episode on your network, on LinkedIn, Twitter, or even WhatsApp. Or perhaps you might consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this episode. You can start a conversation with us by writing to us at podcast at simplifying, that's simply with an I, dot com. And for more content on sustainable aviation, please visit our website green.simplifying.com and join the movement. Sustainability in the Air is an original podcast by Simplifying. The show is produced by Uri Toth in Slovakia. Dirk Singer is our Director of Sustainability who leads research for each interviewee out of Greenwich, UK. Shubhadeep Pau is our supervising editor based out of Mumbai and Singapore. The articles are written by Ayushi Badola in Dehradun in India and Mira Hull in Montreal, Quebec. Creative design is led by Lihia Esteve in Montreal. Baiba Dreamen is the project director for the show based out of Valencia, Spain. Special thanks to Wendy Sim in Singapore. And I'm Shashank Nigam the CEO of Simplifying and your host. Please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn.